The Cultural Enterprises podcast is part of our online academy. Structured courses and learning resources created by industry experts, which encourage flexible learning. So you can watch at your own pace, in your own time, on multiple devices, in a location to suit you. To see how we can help you and your team, please visit culturalenterprises.org.uk forward slash academy. Hello and welcome to episode six and the last episode of series two of the Cultural Enterprises podcast. I am Gabriella Gandolfini and in each episode I'll be talking to a top leader in the arts world. Find out how they got to where they are, what inspires them and what advice they have for the next generation of cultural leaders. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Laura Wright, CEO at the Postal Museum and also a trustee for the Association for Cultural Enterprises and for Turner Contemporary. So welcome, Laura. Thank you. Nice to be here. Let's get started. And we know that you are the CEO at the Postal Museum. We know your job title, but we don't know what that actually means. What is it that you do when you go into the office every day? Well, sometimes, you know, I think what I do is um, watch other people do a great job. Um, if you're in a leadership position, you really do rely on the people who work with you. So what I do when I go into work every day is talk to other people a lot, chat with them about their plans. We um, think about the strategy for the organisation. Um, but particularly in, the, um, in an organisation the size of the Postal Museum, there's also a lot of hands-on stuff. You know, there have been times where I've tidied a cupboard or swept a floor or served a customer. And that's really what I love about my job at the moment, that it, it can encapsulate five-year strategic planning and, um, you know, a group of school children and seeing people go on and off mail rail all at the same time. And that is just a fantastic gift, really. Right now, let's go back to the very beginning. So you studied film and literature at the University of Warwick. So what drove you to study there? When you were a teenager, what did you think that you would be when you grew up? Well, I thought I'd be a famous tap dancer. That's what I wanted to be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I spent my whole whole childhood watching Fred Stare and Gene Kelly and then all those amazing dancers. And yeah, had no firm idea of what I would do at all. I was the first in my immediate family to go to university. So my mum was a nurse and my dad was a tool maker. So I guess I didn't really have a sense of really any jobs in the art world, to be honest. So, um, so university was something I didn't really think about for quite a long time. And then was encouraged. Everyone has one of those teachers, don't they? I was encouraged by a brilliant English teacher, Mrs. Whitehead. Everyone's got a Mrs. Whitehead in their background. And she said, well, of course you're going to university. And so I went off and studied film and literature. And I really just, I guess this is the biggest lesson. I really just picked the thing I was most passionate about. And so I suppose I've done that ever since. I haven't had a plan but I've picked things that I've thought will be interesting, exciting and feel like something I want to spend my time doing. So, yeah, the start of a, of a completely unplanned career doing film and literature. Um, and I have to say that every day over the last few years, I've just thought how lucky my generation was, you know, to go from a, at the time, single parent 
background to university to not have to take on a debt to pick an art subject without any idea of what career I wanted to do to just be free to go and live that life that is a gift and I feel so sad that people in um, younger generations don't get to do that. So you mentioned that you made a lot of your career choices as well as your study choices based on the things you were passionate about and I actually asked this from Bernard Donahue in our second episode about his career if it was all planned out and a quote from him was you need to allow your career to take you because otherwise you miss opportunities you never know you would have in your life. And uh, throughout the episodes, we actually found that from pretty much every single one of our speakers, you need to allow your career to take you. You need to do the things you feel strongly about and passionate about. You need to get life experience. You need to learn from people around you. You need to see what drives you. I've known a few people who've had really, really clear plans about their careers, and I've kind of admired that. And of course, some people have a vocation. You know, some people think they want to be a doctor or, I, you know, whatever it might be. And I, and I have huge admiration for that, but I've never had a plan for myself, apart from to keep learning and to stay interested. That's been the only plan, really. And have you had any regrets in your career so far? Not in the sense of thinking, oh God, I'd have had a, you know, completely a glittering career if I'd done that. Not in that sense. But I suppose I have some regrets about not having learned things as quickly as I might have done. So I think um, quite a lot of my, I don't want to overemphasise this, but I guess quite a lot of my thinking has been shaped in part by self-doubt and the desire to always have a job. Again, sometimes I see people who come from either because of their personality or because of their backgrounds, they have much more sense of confidence about always being able to be okay in the world. And um, I've always kind of thought, how am I going to pay the next bill? And am I doing this well enough? So sort of um, confidence and, and self-doubt might have held me in places. Not enough for me to go, oh my God, what a regret. Just enough for me to go, Do you know, you can learn from this. And you can have a bit more confidence and, and try not to drive yourself into a state of paralysis through self-doubt. So you mentioned that you were the first one in your family to go to university. And as you know, there are alternatives to uh, formal education, like apprenticeships, work placements. So what are your views on the need for formal education for working and succeeding in our industry today? Um, I guess I've got mixed views about them, uh, about formal learning I massively value my time at university because it just showed me worlds that I hadn't had access to before you know I'd never really been properly into an art gallery I hadn't read loads of books I hadn't known that it was completely permissible to take some time to really think about a subject and that was a good thing to do and it you know in very very kind of obvious ways it put me really amazing things. I left home, I looked after myself for the first time, I managed a budget, all of those things that um, university can, can do. I wouldn't say that my most important life experience is from university and I don't believe you have to go to university to do well. One, one of the things I did when I went to the postal museum was to just immediately take off most job descriptions, the need for a degree, because I don't understand putting a blocker like that in place of people who didn't go to university. 
I absolutely think apprenticeships are an amazing thing and I, I wish they were structured better so that employers could make better use of them. I'd love everyone to have the opportunity to be university if they felt it was right for them. And I guess the other thing I always think is, oh, if only university happened at a better time for people, I'd like to go now, you know, and I think I'd be a better university student if I went now. So I think that whole idea of lifelong learning, it's such a phrase, but it's such an important thing, you know, the ability to learn at different times in your career is, is something that I'd really advocate. Tell us about the beginnings of your work life. What did you do and what went well and perhaps what didn't go so well? Well, I left university uniquely unqualified to do anything at all. Um, and, um, but as it was the late 80s, I did what every other art student I knew did. And I went and got work in a bookshop. And that was, and my bookshop, the bookshop I went working was just has shaped my whole life, really. And it was Silver Moon Women's Bookshop on the Charing Cross Road. And it was a time when the Charing Cross Road was filled with bookshops and the DLC would um, grant leases for, for shops if they were book-based. And so it felt like a brilliant community. Um, all of these kind of radical and second-hand um, and art bookshops down the Charing Cross Road. And um, introduced me to a community of people who cared passionately questioned everything they were the most difficult the most challenging the most interesting customers I've ever served I I just loved it it opened my eyes completely to to the idea of retail and commerce forming a community that really really meant something so and um, one of the things I did at Silver Moon was I was their mail order packer and I used to get all of the orders in from around the country and we were a life support service really for you know for many young lesbians growing up in rural communities or went out to their family and they'd send off to us and they'd get books sent to them and they'd put notes into the into their orders and I'd put notes back and it just really felt very exciting and challenging totally challenged me I absolutely loved it and I, I'm still very much in touch with that silver moon community and yeah, I think it was absolutely just, just such a brilliant first job for anyone to have. Let's talk about the Tate. Laura started working at Tate Modern as a retail manager and after three years, Laura moved on to Tate Enterprises where she went from retail director to CEO in a space of eight years. And that brings Laura to a total working time at the Tate for over 19 years. And I can only imagine what the Tate must mean to you after all that time. The opening day of Tate Modern, I think, is the single most exciting day in my career. Um, it was just thrilling after months and months and months of incredibly hard work. And, you know, all the glitzy stuff around the party and the opening and all of that. But the most meaningful thing was the public walking in for the first time. And even at the time, I think... We knew that it was going to change what the artistic landscape looked like in Britain. But I don't think I realised how fundamentally. So I feel, it did feel absolutely amazing to be part of something so important. And I guess that's why I stayed at Tate for so long, because it never felt stale. It's a very, very dynamic organisation, very questioning. I worked with great people. And I always felt like I was learning something new. And I also felt like I felt very passionately that what I was doing was contributing to 
um, a really important organisation and an important sector so that it was never just selling stuff, although of course it was selling stuff, but it was never just that, it was selling stuff that mattered and that where the money went back into something that um, made a difference to society. I completely agree. Um, from personal experience, I can see that people stay in our industry for many, many years. And one of the reasons for it is what you just said, is the personal connection that we feel with those amazing organizations we work for. And because we believe in the work they do, we, is work we genuinely are proud of. There will be listeners to this podcast who have been in their organizations also for many years. What advice would you have for those people in terms of the lifelong learning you mentioned and the keeping fresh and remaining engaged? For me, I think um, a number of things were important during that time. First of all, the organisation as a whole. You know, is it an organisation that is whose ideas and vision you believe in and connect with? Do you think it's striving to do better all the time? Is it always challenging itself? And then it has to do with, with you and your role, doesn't it? Do you, are you learning stuff in your role? Are you connecting with people? Who are you networking with? Where are you getting your ideas from? In a way, I'm not saying that everybody needs to constantly be going, right, what am I going to be doing today? Because that is, you know, that's tough. And, and also for some people, work isn't their whole life. And there'll be other things they're doing outside of their job, which is where they get their passion from, you know. There, many of the people I worked with at Tate were artists and they were, they were working in a congenial place where they believed in what they were doing, but they were leaving there and going and doing their own work and bringing their own passion to their own work. So, so I guess any, people might have any number of reasons for staying in a, in a post for a long time, but what I would say is, and, that, and I think all of those reasons are valid and None of them are more worthy than any other. But the one thing I would really caution against is staying for a long time in a place you don't believe in, finding yourself in a place of low energy or cynicism, and actually being a drain, being a drain in your own life or on your colleagues or on your, or on your organisation. And I think at that point, you've got a duty to yourself as much as anyone else to try and find something that actually makes you happier. So I've spent a long time at Tate and I don't think I ever, I, I never said, oh, we did that before. Well, I shan't bother to join in with that because I know that's not going to work. You know, I always felt like, oh, yeah, no, this is exciting. This is different. We can do something really interesting here. How was the transition from being a director to becoming a CEO? Have you ever doubted yourself or felt like this is not the right career path? No, I constantly doubt myself. It's a real, real... Um, well, I suppose you could say it uh, stops you being bombastic, hopefully, and stops you being entitled, but it also can hold you back. So, yes, I've, I've always had self-doubt. But at the same time, I've all, I thought to myself, I feel I can do a good job there. You know, I, I care about the company. I care about how it contributes to Tate. And I love the place. And I want to, I want to do that job. It was really tough, really tough to go from being a director to being a CEO, in part because I stepped up to that role from a group of peers. So it wasn't like coming into a completely new place and scoping out the territory. I sort of had, a, obviously, I had a lot of history with Tate. So I did find it really hard and really interesting 
did a lot of learning in that time, made some awful mistakes, which I look back on in horror. And I got better at it, I guess. I feel like, you know, spent my time improving what I was doing while I was there. I won't ask you about the mistakes, obviously, but, uh, <laughs> but there is a lot of pressure for someone in a leadership role like yours. When you feel confronted with a problem that you don't know how to solve, what do you do? How do you handle those situations? I found it's got easier the older I've got because I have more confidence in my experience and my judgment, but also because I've built up enough reserves, I guess, to be able to say, I don't know what to do here and what do you all think? And also to be more self-aware about the ways in which I learn or make decisions. So um, I'm not somebody who goes into a room and shuts the door and thinks everything through and comes out and goes, here's the answer. I do need to be surrounded by people that I can, where I can just verbalize things and say, well, what about this? And sometimes the what about this is the wrong thing. But if you've got people you trust who understand that that's what you can do and, and they're confident enough to be able to say back to you, that's a terrible idea. Or no, that won't work for this reason. Or oh, a bit of that's good, but some of it's not very good. Then hopefully you can make better decisions collectively, uh, but also you can own them. Because people do want you to, they want you to balance two things, I think. They want you to consult and be open-minded and respectful of other people's positions. But then ultimately, they want you to own the decision that's being made. So I have felt more comfortable, I guess, in saying, I don't know. And I learned really, really early on in my career that if you're a leader that can't say sorry, then you're really not a good leader. Just being able to acknowledge wrongness matters and we're in a world at the moment where it, you know that's incredibly important so before we move on from the tate can you share with us a few pieces of personal learning during your time at the tate things that hit home or perhaps changed everything for you i think i learned how to get a better balance of being thin-skinned and being resilient because what you want to do is you want to be able to cope every day you don't want to be so thin-skinned that you just can't usefully get through tough times but on the other hand you don't want to be so tough that you can't hear what people are saying you have been a trustee for the association for cultural enterprises for just over a year and a trustee for tenor contemporary for about four years what advice would you have for someone in our industry wanting to become a trustee for the first time? You need to be confident about what skills you're going to bring to a board. So you need to be quite clear-sighted about your skills and abilities. And I would say that um, for anybody who comes from a background where it's not natural to pick up your, your expertise, that you should learn to do that because boards need people who are not used to saying I deserve to be on a board and I've got some skills you need to listen to. So I would say the first bit of work is on yourself to have the confidence in the skills you can bring. The second thing is to find an organisation that you care about because if you're going to be a good trustee you need to give time and um, it's not just going to a meeting three times a year, it shouldn't be. So you need to care enough to make space in your 
life to be a good trustee. And then I would say network like mad. And um, I come from a very unnetworked background. And I think I carried a big chip on my shoulder for many years about networking. I kind of thought, oh, networking, it's for people who went to Eton and Oxbridge. And that's nonsense, you know. Um, one of the things that um, made a massive change to my thinking about my career and my life, actually, was doing a course through um, a charity called Common Purpose. And they're an organisation that link people up across sectors. They're very much about um, the power of networking in different communities. So I just thought, well, I'm going to seek people out I admire and I'm going to talk to them. And, I, and without exception, they were all incredibly generous. I never had a knockback. And you pay that forward, don't you? So if people contact me and say, I'd like to talk to you or could we have a coffee or I always say yes. Um, not only because I think, oh, well, I might be able to share some expertise with them, but also because I think, well, great, I might be able to pick their brains. This will be interesting. So I think that real sense of networking as much as you can, just meeting people and talking to people, being open to other people's experiences and sharing yours with them helps you when it comes to having the confidence and having the connections to get on a board. A lot of people in our industry find networking really, really hard. And we talked about networking every single one of our episodes so far. Can you just finish that topic with a very practical advice that you could give people on how to get started with networking? First of all, I think you should look at your place of work and you should ask and seek help from colleagues, peers, senior people in the organisation. And you should be explicit about wanting that help. Then I think you should attend sessions, conferences, whatever way you can meet people and you can network. And one of the benefits of this current time is that suddenly networking has become free <laughs> or cheaper, much cheaper, free and easy to access from your own home. And there are conferences coming up and there are webinars and all sorts of things where you can just join. You know, you don't have to apply, you don't have to come up with a fee. And then I think there are platforms where you can make yourself more visible. You know, um, there's probably staff groups in your working environments. There are things like uh, Twitter and Instagram. I think Twitter is a, within the museum sector on Twitter. It's incredibly supportive. So you can make great connections there. I mean, whenever I do a talk at a conference or anywhere, I always finish by putting my email address on the screen and I'm always really happy for people to contact me or I'm even really happy for people to contact me to say, I don't really want to talk to you, but I know, you know, so-and-so, will you put me in touch with them? Yeah, that's fine. You know, I think just put boundaries, see what you can do. Plenty of people in the world who don't fear doing any of that stuff. So I think if you fear doing it, you're the one that should be doing it. For the Postal Museum, you've been there as a CEO for about two years. How do you make the very tough decision to leave the Tate and adjust to somewhere completely new? Tate was going through a time of change, uh, as it always does. And I guess I thought to myself, am I bringing the best that I can bring to this organisation now? Or is it a time for them to think about new voices, new perspectives? But I didn't want to be the one in the corner where people were going, oh, don't expect anything from her. She's been there for 19 years. And I, I thought, you know, I want to learn something different. And I had a, 
I had a really strong sense that I wanted to work in an organisation that had a social history collection. One of my other roles in, the, in my local community was as a trustee um, for a local library. And so that gave me a very strong sense of wanting to work with communities in a different way and wanting to work with a collection that was completely unintimidating. So I guess I thought I've I've, uh, I've loved my time at Tate, it's been absolutely amazing. But actually now I want to learn a different bit of the sector. I want to work with different audiences. And so that was a strong part of it. And then the other part really pragmatically was that Tate's huge and it had got bigger and bigger and bigger in the time I was there. And I always thought I'll know everybody's names in the company. I'll always know everyone's names. And I just didn't by the end, it was 240 people. And I wanted to go and work in an organisation where I do know everyone. And so, um, you know, we're 100 people in the postal museums. That's a massive difference. Um, when I say 240 people to take, that was just, the that was just the enterprises. Um, it wasn't catering and it wasn't the rest of the gallery, obviously. So, so even in a smallish bit of Tate, it was a lot of people. So going to a, a place where, where it feels very personal, you do know everyone, that, that was a great thing to do. What is it that works for you when it comes to leading your teams? I mean, I suppose the correct answer is, it's, well, you should ask them if, if, if it works. <laughs> but um, for me, I think leadership is authenticity. It doesn't matter if I get something wrong personally day to day, as long as I can feel that I have brought my best self to some of that decision making and that I've enabled and empowered other people to do the same. I don't think work is, is like your home, but I do think you should be able to be authentic as a person in your workplace. It's always mattered to me from very early on in my career that my decisions have integrity behind them. I'm not going to make decisions just for the point of it or because it's immediately easy or any of that stuff. I want them to be properly thought through and I want them to be in consultation with other people, empowering of other people. So I most enjoy leading when actually it feels like teamwork and where different voices are heard. And I observe poor leadership in other places where people are too scared to speak or they're excluded in the first place. I have to say, I don't think you can ever be good enough at that. And I'm sure there are people who would say, it's easier to talk if you're a certain kind of person than another. And that's not kind of, that's never good enough. And I agree with them. It's never good enough. You just have to keep trying and trying to do it well. Now you as Laura, what do you like to do when you're not working? I read a lot. The reading is my thing. And I read widely novels and nonfiction and um that's my escape, really, I guess. So if reading is your thing, could you recommend as a really good book? Oh, God, whatever I recommend, I'm going to regret that I didn't recommend something else. Can I recommend a few books? As many as you like. A couple of books. Um, so I'm going to recommend four books. The first is The Good Immigrant, which is edited by Nikesh Shukla, which is just essential reading. It's brilliant. The second is a book that I absolutely love and I love all of her writing and it's called I Am, I Am, I Am by Maggie O'Farrell. 17 Brushes with Death. It's so compelling and so touching and um, 
so vulnerable. Great writing. The third one is a book called Citizen by Claudia Rankine, and it's beautiful, beautiful, angry, impassioned writing. Definitely read that. And the last one I'm going to recommend is Chris Hadfield's biography. I've got his name like the Canadian astronaut. And that's a really great thing to read about somebody who knew from very, very early on what he wanted to be. He wanted to be an astronaut, despite the fact that Canada didn't have any kind of space program at all. And he spent his whole life, his whole teenage life, childhood life going, well, if I was going to be an astronaut, what should I be doing now? And the thing that really resonated with me about him was that he said the single most important thing to do is ask yourself really difficult questions. So I think he's very inspiring when it comes to leadership. Three questions to bring your podcast to an end. What mistake or mistakes do you often see others making in our industry that we need to stop making? Oh, that's such a difficult question. Because I think on the whole, our sector is so well-meaning and so passionate about making meaningful change and doing, making a better society. So, and there are two flip sides of that, aren't there? There's the one where you kind of work yourself into a bit of a state of paralysis because you're so aware of all the things you could be doing wrong that you don't do anything to make change. Or you, the flip side of that is you think, well, but we're the good guys. We don't need to make change. But I've got great hope that we're so questioning We'll always keep asking how we can do things better. What piece of advice would you give to someone in the beginning of their career wanting to be in a leadership role like yours one day? Work hard, think about what you're passionate about, work out what's authentic to you and what matters to you and then dedicate yourself to that. I suppose leadership doesn't necessarily have to mean being at the top of an organisation. You know, leadership means being an influencer and a changer and a leader in your own life, what, however that is meaningful to you. So don't feel that you have to be pressured by other people's definitions of success. Describe the ideal top leader in our industry in three words. I would say questioning, humble, passionate. Thank you so much for your honest answers, your advice. I've taken so much from our conversation today. Thank you, Laura. Oh, you're welcome. Nice to talk to you. And thank you for listening. This is the end of Series 2, and I hope you've enjoyed Series 2 and my conversation with Laura as much as I have. The main things that Laura said today, which I'm taking with me, are don't be pressured by other people's ideas of success. If you are a leader who can't say sorry, you are not a good leader. Believe in lifelong learning. Work at a place you believe in and network like mad. If you have any feedback or would like to share your learnings with us, please email info at cultureenterprises.org.uk. We would love to hear from you. The Culture Enterprises podcast is available on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe today so you don't miss when Series 3 go live. I'll see you then.